It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. This episode of the Analyst Inside Cricket is brought to you by IG official partners of England cricket and the place to go if you want to get on the front foot and manage your own investments. IG's platform allows you to invest in thousands of international shares and exchange-traded funds, as well as a number of fully managed, ready-made portfolios if you'd rather leave it to the experts. To find out more, go to ig.com investing, remembering that the value of your investments may fall as well as rise and you may get back less than you deposit. Stokes flashes it away through the covers for four, and England have won the match. Hello, everyone. No cricket today, of course, as we all come together to mourn the loss of our great Queen. But we have got some cricket conversation for you. We're talking the art and science of selection, because the other day Simon Mann and I chatted with the former Kent Middlesex and England batsman Ed Smith, who, as chief England selector for three years between 2018 and 2021, was one of the main architects of England's excellent performances in that period, crowned of course by that amazing World Cup triumph in 2019. Ed has been quite quiet since he left the post last year, but now he's produced an intriguing book about his experiences in the job And it's a real study of the whole philosophy and process of team selection, how much of it is governed by data and how much by observation and opinion. The book is called Making Decisions, Putting the Human Back in the Machine, and it's published on September the 15th. I notice, Ed, your first line in this book, how much longer until the selection of cricket teams is done entirely by an algorithm, which is a great question to start with. And I suppose it spins off the fact that when you applied to be the test selector or the England selector, uh, one of the first questions was, is selection art or science? So what have you concluded? That's a very good question. I want to go back a little bit. Your your intro was, was too generous. That's not modesty. It was too generous. And that's not how I, I see that period. I think um, there was a period of time when England had a number of people who had different strengths 
and I think it gelled together quite well. And I think performances across the formats, you know, were good. There are always ways it could be improved and you look back on the mistakes as well as the good times. So hopefully we'll look at both sides of it today. In terms of the specific question you ask, um, it, it's the relationship or the, the continuum between at the one end, you know, what might be called something approaching science and at the other end, pure instinct where no one really knows how the decision was arrived at. It's very hard to capture workings or, or if you like, you know, the method that, it, that the decision was reached by. And of course, creative people often spend a lot of their life at that end of the spectrum. And I think they can have great insights and brilliant decisions and uh, discoveries and innovations can come from very intuitive um, parts of the brain or the intelligence. So you don't want to completely block out um, opportunities for that mode of thought. But it's also true that as we live in an increasingly data rich world, as more and more aspects of cricket can be captured, measured, analysed, and that data can then be uh, scrutinised in increasingly useful ways. I felt as a, um, someone who was interested in cricket, you know, before, long before being asked to get involved on the selection side of it, when we would sometimes sit alongside each other in commentary days, I thought that it would be silly not to take a close interest in how data could lead you, A, to have a better understanding of the game as it was changing, which is sometimes, I think, an underestimated aspect of data analytics. How's the game changing? What is actually, what's different about the game now from before? And secondly, how might understanding those trends and understanding who's playing better, perhaps, or who has more value or use than we might see with our eyes, how can that kind of thinking about data lead us to make better decisions about bowling changes, obviously, on the field, but also particularly an interest of mind selection? Now, when people frame that question, and the person who asked me that question, which starts the book, I think that the assumption is you're going to say, well, it's, we're getting very close to the day when human beings aren't really bringing any value and it's going to be all algorithm. And I don't think that's true. I think that clearly some aspects of life are going to be perfectly resolved once all the data is present. We know that a single human being can't beat a computer at chess. That balance of power shifted in 1997 with Gary Kasparov losing to Deep Blue. But we also know that a team of human beings directing a computer is better still in chess. So in other words, you can have a human being doing strategy, being open to insight and big picture thinking with computer algorithms, machine learning, whatever you want to call it, to actually execute a tactical play where the boundaries are very clearly defined and we know what the superior decision is. I think the question in modern sport is how do you bring it all together? And we touched on that often, I think, in conversations, you know, in commentary time, which is sometimes there's quite a big gap between what people who spend their whole life living in data think ought to happen and people in the dressing room or in management. And I think sometimes uh, there's a role for someone who has a foot in both camps and who can see the game through different lenses, through a very human lens and through a data lens and bring it all together and hopefully add some value in that way. I think actually um, it's interesting discussion. And I'll just add there about Kasparov. And uh, I read or heard an interview uh, with him talking about 
uh, the option in one match where he decided to offer the computer a giveaway pawn and the computer rejected it because it, it saw through his ruse, which was to sort of sucker the computer into doing something which Kasparov wanted. And the computer able was able to almost apply a human element to the decision-making to reject the offer of a pawn. So are we getting closer to data or to you know, statistics, to algorithms being almost human in their uh, reaction to situations? Yeah, and, and there's a whole literature about that question. I think partly it depends on the nature of the game. So there's a distinction, isn't there, between a very bounded game where there's less uncertainty. So chess, there's no weather. You know, there are no conditions in chess. You know, there's a question of who moves first and that's it. And as well in cricket, for example, particularly in a test match, it's very hard to capture all the ways in which a test match is unpredictable. The pitch can change, the wind can change direction, bad light can affect the amount of time that's left in the game. It's quite hard to capture all that in a model. I think one of the things that's interesting is that T20, where conditions play less of a part, where players' performance, given a sufficient sample size, is actually pretty constant. Obviously, people have spells of good form and bad form and they have the potential to get better. But if you look at someone like A.B. de Villiers, one of the all-time great 2020 players, if you had access to A.B. de Villiers for 20 games, he's not going to score slowly. In actual fact, we can predict pretty, you know, in the middle of his career, you could predict reasonably confidently that he's going to score within a certain band, a very attractive and high band. So I think in 2020, uh, and obviously Nathan Lehman has used the coded systems in 2020 for England's captains, beginning with Owen Morgan and now Joss Butler in that format. I think we, or if you like, uh, data is getting closer to optimising strategy. I think we're there's a lot further to go in in test cricket and longer form cricket. There's so much in the book, Ed. I mean, it's, it's a book of ideas, but it's also a book of examples as well. I suppose um, that the journalist in me uh, noted that the book is is very discreet. Uh, you know, it, it was about your time as national selector. I mean, no one is thrown under the bus, uh, although perhaps at times the absence of comment is, I don't know, re revelatory. Perhaps it's not. Um, Perhaps the journalist in me wanted to to know more. Did did you want to say more about your your time as the national selector and and perhaps the the end of your time as national selector as well? There we go. There we go. There's a there's a, a journalistic question. Well, you, start? you guys are a hell of a team. One guy quizzing me about the data, the other guy using the journalistic instincts. Um, no, actually, and it's a very good question, Simon, because I think you're asking if I felt constrained in any way? And the answer is I didn't. I, I just wrote a, and I think you've captured it perfectly, that it is a book of ideas. And that's the what I wanted it to be. And you also said that it doesn't throw anyone under the bus. And that's also how I wanted it to be. Because that's how I saw that period of time. I saw it overwhelmingly as a positive spell um, with ideas sometimes to the fore, certainly in my own head. You know, <laughs> Other people might see it differently. and They might see that period of time through a very different lens. A lens you know, revolving around charismatic leadership, which we definitely had about, you know, very skillful and deaf coaches, which we had. So there's lots of different ways of looking at that, that period of time as there always is in sport. I think what I was trying to do was, and I, I hope I've done, is to capture the ideas that I was thinking about and drawing on. 
And hopefully that does shed some light on the three years, but also hopefully has some value for people who are building other kinds of teams. The, I suppose that one thing I thought I might have done a little bit differently, maybe, without having spoken to all the people that have selected England teams. Is I think I was, you're always selecting individuals and you're always weighing up individual players, one v the other. That's inevitably part of it. But I did spend a lot of time, and, and James Taylor too, and the coach and the captains who were always involved too, in thinking about, did it add up to more than the sum of its parts? And that's, I think, an interesting question in selection because the talking point, and I don't want to point any fingers at the media either, not least because I've been part of it, and, and there's always a need to talk about things that are interesting and fall out of the game and have drama. But sometimes the talking point very quickly becomes X v Y as though that explains the whole thing. But sometimes, I think from a decision-making point of view, what you're trying to do is put a whole together, which is you know, the most effective and most likely to win that can possibly be arranged. And that will sometimes throw up the odd anomaly where a player who's got a slightly higher average might miss out or a bowler who's got a slightly lower average might miss out. And one of the examples I touch on in the book is, is about varied attack. You don't always need a varied attack. On a minefield, you know, four right-arm seamers bowling on off stumps, they're going to get you out. You don't need to have anything different. But on a flatter pitch or on a pitch which, which deteriorates or a pitch where seam bowlers find it harder as it progresses, the ability to change angles, to have spin, to have different trajectories and angles, that definitely helps um, the ability to take wickets. So, we, we, you know, we were always thinking about that. I suppose another point is, Simon, that I came to view, and I think yours' first question about data, that, that may have been where I started. You know, how can we optimise? How can we resolve? How can we, you know, find the answers? By the end of the three years, I actually felt I'd been on a real journey of discovery myself. And I came to view selection more through the lens of creativity. And how could I add value to these brilliant people with their data sets? Um who can, you know, just ask any query and then give you the match up straight away and, and be so brilliant at processing information. And I think maybe it's through those very human areas, you know, making analogies, putting things together that are surprising, the ability to maybe make an imaginative leap that, you know, surprises yourself sometimes, having conversations where you're not worried about saying the wrong thing, because in that very free associating space, good ideas emerge. And sometimes with very close teams, and we had a really close team sort of off the field, I had a brilliant co-selector in James Taylor, who was absolutely fantastic. Um, Mo Bobat, who set up the whole uh, scouting network, and then David Court, who came from the FA, and then the captains and the coaches. And sometimes in those chats, it's hard to remember who said what, or who had the idea, because you're just chatting and you're looking at problems, and an answer will kind of emerge. So I, I came to the view that um, part of selection was the ability to be open to surprise and not to be too boxed off and too kind of narrow-minded about it. Which leads me to the, the thought that, you know, you, you, you thought you were onto a good thing and you did it for three years and the team had some successes. And then there was that about turn, wasn't there? There was, you know, sudden, suddenly we, we were reading uh, in April 2021 that you'd been... Uh, dispensed with. I mean, how much did that 
disappoint you that you were no longer able to do this job that had you know, clearly fascinated you and had, had also you know provoked lots of ideas uh, in you and and the team as well that's a, a really good question and, and I think the answer is that you know there were three things there was sadness and because when you're involved with something which has a very strong sense of mission and camaraderie and teamwork and you believe that you know the part you're involved has got some special people and you, you, you love working with them. There is a sadness when it ends. I thought, secondly, I, I tried, you mentioned in your introduction, Simon, that you haven't heard much from me. I really wanted to give the people who were then the decision makers some space. And I didn't think there was any benefit to anyone, me or England cricket or the people who were then making decisions for me to be popping up in the media or giving interviews or giving a running commentary on things at all. So I wanted to create some space. And then I also had trust that, you know, eventually, I think if you believe that you're circling around some ideas that have value, you also then should have confidence that those ideas will come through, even if it may be long after you've gone and everyone's forgotten who you are or that you were ever involved, which happens very quickly in, in sport, as we know, because everyone's interested in the next match and, and the heroes. And actually, this summer, uh, I did feel, even though take no credit for anything, but it was interesting that when Brendan McCullum came in, I thought it was a very shrewd appointment by Rob Key, who's done a good job as acting head of selection, and also in his appointment of Brendan McCullum, that you know Brendan signalled very quickly that he had a, he wanted to play an attacking brand of cricket because that suited the players and maybe would actually help the long term future of Test cricket, and he wanted to know about the availability of a few white ball stars, you know Adil Rashid, Moeen Ali, Joss Butler, where were they at? What were they thinking? And I suppose you know in truth. When I thought about England cricket, I always was attracted to the idea of talent. And that's not the only thing that matters. There's got to be achievement and there's got to be uh, runs and wickets, of course. But as an ex-captain, I always used to look at the opposition and I thought if all 11 of their players can turn the game on its head and take it away from us, that's not a great fun prospect, you know, for me as I'm juggling my bowling attack. And yeah, there were definitely times when I think you know, I thought in those terms about how can we maximise the talent? How can we get the game changers on the field? And then, of course, um, there was the great thrill of watching England play so well this summer, by which point I'm long gone. And, you know, I, I thought you know, one of the highlights of the summer for me was, you know, Johnny Bairstow's batting has been absolutely brilliant. Johnny may have been disappointed at some of the decisions I made, but I can honestly say I always thought he had it in him to be a great specialist batsman. Never doubted that for a second, even though there were spells when he had out of the team and we wanted him to reset and come again. But that was an instinct I definitely had. And I suppose it was great to see it, you know, in full flow this summer. Yeah, there was a hiatus between you going and obviously... Uh, Brendan McCullum coming in there was that period where England lost lost a lot of matches actually not long after you uh, lost the job and actually what I did today is I went back um, to have a look at some of the things that were written at the time that you were removed from the job and I this I came across this Randy Bull in the Guardian which made me laugh actually 21st of April 2021 uh, after you'd gone and Chris Civil was given the sort of overall um, um, job of, of you know, being the final selector, if you like, or being the you know, final arbiter of the eleven, he said, "It seems a simpler way of doing things, but will no doubt turn out to have its complications the next time England lose the Ashes." Which, of course, is ex exactly what happened, wasn't it? And then, 
you know, England losing Australia and then we're having reviews and we're, you know, we're, we're having everyone being sacked and, and, a, and a complete about turn. So I, su- I suppose how much of how, how much of your ideas have uh, or, or your way of doing things or the way that England do things have survived, really? You know, that, that, you know there was that year where things just seemed to go horribly wrong. Again, it's a very difficult question because the truth is I, I haven't been involved. Yeah. You know, I'm probably a little bit more aware now um, just through some some relationships and uh, and some sense and some actually some some signaling. You can kind of get an impression where people are at. in that sort of year after leaving. I just wanted to give people distance and space and, and got on with my life and was busy with my academic institute and and beginning thinking about this book. So I don't know is the answer. Um, and the other thing is you don't have any any right to, you know, for any of your ideas to survive or carry on. Actually, one thing I do very firmly believe, which runs through the book and also through my thinking about sport, is there are many different types of good decision maker. Perhaps the only thing they have in common is that they all have it. They all do it in their own way. And that's a bit of a cliche, you know, be yourself. But you know, I can think of a great decision, some great decision makers in sport who get nothing out of this book at all and say, well, I just did what I believed in and kept it simple. And that would be fair from their perspective. I'm sure there are great football managers that didn't have the similar frameworks or whatever. But for someone like me, you know, I had a, a sort of way of thinking about problem solving or several different approaches, which actually drew on sometimes different sports. I actually learned a lot from American sport and learned a lot from beyond sport you know, I used to sometimes think that when I was reading, uh, there's a great investor called Howard Marks who writes a newsletter. And when I'd read him talking about how he makes decisions and how unemotional he was and how happy he was to concede that he didn't know that he was making the right decision, but he thought on balance it was the best judgment. There was no certainty. And this guy's obviously making decisions with big consequences financially. And he's very, very good at it. But he never dresses it up as it's the right thing to do, 100% the right thing to do. I've got no doubt and it's scientific. Far from it. He's able to live with the tension and the uncertainty and to actually almost turn that into a strength. Everyone else is saying it's obvious and they know what they're going to do. I'm not so sure. Let's reconsider that. And can you live with that? I, I think there are benefits to combining the best of scepticism where you're always revisiting mistakes which we'll come back to in a second I'm sure um, and how can you refine and improve and also having some conviction and confidence it's a fine balance because if you don't have confidence and conviction you're not going to be able to stand behind any difficult decisions so that's the that's the tension and the balance I, think. I suppose um, you know some of if we, if we kind of bore into the detail a little bit uh, some of the decisions that you made that came off for example were one was in a uh, uh, chapter which I like the title of the swarm harmonizer which is a very clever way of talking about a a player who inspires everybody else I suppose Uh, and that was Sam Curran in in this case who you kind of had a punt for and got into the team on the basis that he bowled left arm that he was a bit shorter that he had a a positive attitude that he was untarnished I suppose by defeat and so on because he was coming into the team fresh and the interesting thing you revealed... And he was a very good batter. And he was, yes, and yeah. he was a, a purposeful... For a low... For a low... For a, for a who was batting at eight, he was... Very yeah. Good. Uh, in fact, Alex Stewart has often said he probably thinks he'll be end up as a batter rather than a bowler. But um, the interesting thing you revealed uh, about his impact is that 
not only did he have cameos with the bat and take key wickets, but he brought more out of already great performers like Anderson and Broad, whose averages were lower playing with Curran than not playing with him. Yeah, and it's probably one refinement I'd make about that. And obviously, you know, in the case of those two, they're so great. And I'm not saying that they were, you know, so many wickets of theirs happened without Sam Curran. So they're they're incredible bowlers. You know, Jimmy's the greatest ever. Stuart's right up there. You know, the point I'm making is that it's interesting how a complementary challenge or a different type of line of attack can add up to a better whole. And that's true for a batting order too, by the way. I think that sometimes, you know, cricket's a series of events. It's not like football, which is a sort of a holistic collective movement. Cricket's obviously a series of events. So to some extent, you're on your own. But you do bowl as a unit. And you'll know, Simon, you know, you played in a, a brilliant balanced attack. Left arm spin for it, for Middlesex, you know, left arm spin, Philip Edmonds, off spin, John Embry, pace, seam, you know, sometimes Vanderbilt height, trajectory. We didn't have know, a left armour, actually, but a left arm seam. A left arm seam would have been, you know, but you had yeah. you had so many options in your bowling attack. And, of course, then it, it helps if you've got good captains to deploy them well, which obviously you did. I think that, um, you know, I actually became really interested in that. There was a, there's a famous example and a great piece by Michael Lewis about Shane Battier, who was backed, the basketball player, backed by a legendary GM in basketball, Daryl Morey, who realised that this guy wasn't leaving much of a statistical trace in terms of his own actions, rebounds, assists, points. But when he looked at the plus minus of the team when this player was on court, the team always played better. So he was doing things that, that helped collective output without necessarily being wholly captured individually. That Did you call me... him something like a, a a whispering influence rather than a shouting influence? Yeah, or well, the, you know, Maury actually called that Lego. He said when he's on court, all the pieces fit together. The 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 line about uh, talent is Rasmus Ankerson's, who said you want to look for talent that whispers, not talent that shouts. And Rasmus Ankerson, I think, did an amazing job uh, as co-director of football at Brentford, taking Brentford with very little money into the Premier League, and then you know doing very well in the Premier League. So, you know, he was on to this whole question of, you know, both of those people, Daryl Morey uh, and Rasmus Ankerson, are absolutely on to how do you find undervalued talent? And to that degree, a selector is like an investor. You know, anyone can say, you know, Ben Stokes is amazing. Jimmy Anderson's the greatest ever. They're going to be in the team. <laughs> you know, Joe Root's England's greatest ever batsman. You know, once you've said that, then you can move on. The question is, and that's actually a very interesting thing about selection. You live your life... At player 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, that's, that is where you spend a huge amount of your time in terms what of you final mean because 11. seven or eight that, that pick themselves. Really. Exactly. And then also you obviously spend a lot of time around 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, which is a question of getting into the squad. And, you know, I think that sometimes a missed dimension or an underestimated dimension is does that last pick player, how does it affect the whole package? There's another way of looking at it. And, you, you know, you, you cite the, the swarm harmonizer example, the person who just by being themselves somehow makes the whole thing come together well. There's another th way of looking at that question, which is actually more conventionally in the old fashioned way about, you know, character. We've had lots of batsmen selected for England over the last 10 years since the kind of very settled top three of Strauss, Cook, Trot, which obviously was a great team. 
and it's been hard to find a consistent top order. And actually, I never blamed particularly the selectors before me because I could see it was very difficult and we used to talk about it. They're looking at all the players. They're doing the best they can for England. It's not easy to resolve. That was how I felt too. And I think people would agree that's still the situation now. Hopefully in time, it will become very straightforward and Alex Lees and Zach Crawley will, will fly and everything. Well, will be- I mean, you, you've mentioned, haven't you, that uh, there is a sort of mean average of top three in the last few years and it's about 24. So yeah, whoever's been tried shows how, how tough it is, basically. It shows how tough that, it is. That someone like Crawley, who averages fractionally above that, but has the ceiling or a very high ceiling of a, a double century. So in a way, he's v- worth investing in a bit more time with, even though his average is fairly similar to all the other people. Exactly. And that's a balance, you know, it, you know, do you go for the the more consistent player who might have a slightly lower ceiling or do you invest more in the high ceiling player who might be a bit more unpredictable? They've obviously gone that route. The point I was going to make was that of those many, many players who've, tried that really difficult role. Often, of course, half their games at least are going to be played in English conditions against the Duke, which has done quite a lot, less this year, but often done a lot. You know, I felt that some of the people we gave reasonably long runs to had their moments, but also you're more inclined to do it if they hold together well and continue to contribute to the group in an intangible way. And the two players I'm thinking of there would be Keaton Jennings and Joe Denley both of whom did a really tough job at times pretty well, you know, and continued to kind of keep their demeanour very balanced, very level, very unselfish. And I thought that that was worth kind of putting into the mix. You know, you know, people say... And that's where, that's where human decision-making, you know, and observation and character assessment, I suppose, can override basic stats. Absolutely. And I think that particularly when the stats aren't throwing up a particularly strong case again, uh, you know, an alternative. So it was one of the things you're trying to work out is, are you, are the, is the statistical case within the boundary of error? You know, so, and if it is, if it's marginal, then that's where your human judgment comes to the fore. You've got to start, and that's where you want to be talking to everyone and you want to be forming a really balanced assessment of someone based on the inside as well as the outside. That's another thing about selection is that, you know, some people said, have written or thought I was aloof or, you know, standoffish. Maybe I was trying to keep a bit of distance, but I was always wanted to know. I was often around, I watched carefully. And also I asked people on the inside and I thought, I'll give you an example there was a tour where I was there pretty much all the way through, which was Sri Lanka 2018. And what happened was I watched on my own, sort of away from the dressing room. And in the evening, we'd all have dinner. It would be Trevor Bayliss, Paul Firebrace and the coaches, Mark Rampakash, Chris Silverwood. And we'd sit together and they would know things that I wouldn't know because they'd know whether the ball got out of shape in the 23rd over or when it started to deaden off. or what. They wouldn't have that instant feedback from the middle that I didn't have. But I wouldn't have been part of the conversation. So I'd have had that outsider's perspective. And I really enjoyed those conversations because we'd almost come from a very different day watching the same match through a different lens. I think if you aggregate that and bring it all together, you know, you can have a useful, um, you can add some value. And again, you know, there's nothing about my view of selection which cuts against the fact that coaches can add huge value 
And I remember those chats and sometimes coaches would say things almost before they thought about it. And that would be the most precious thing. You know, it might be, we just need something different. And then they would, so that would be the truth. And then you'd have to go away and live with it and come back and maybe do a bit of persuading later. And it's those, sometimes people have the answer, they spit it out and then they just need to have it kind of, you know, presented back to them with a bit, you know, few options and whatever. Um, so there, there is always a role for perceptiveness, intuition and observation, actually. Time for another shout out for our sponsor, IG. If you're investing for the future and want to put yourself in the best possible position to achieve the best possible outcomes, then you could do worse than considering investments from IG. Through IG's investing platform, you can pick from thousands of UK and international shares with low commissions and extended hours on dozens of major US stocks. You can also discover the potential of exchange-traded funds, or ETFs, which allow you to invest in the performances of a wide range of different sectors, regions, assets and themes, like clean energy, electric vehicles or AI. Or, if you'd rather leave it to the experts, you can choose from a number of ready-made, low-cost IG smart portfolios, each designed and managed for you in line with your preferred risk appetite. All options are available as a tax-efficient ISA, with a SIP account coming very soon. To find out more, go to ig.com slash investing, remembering that the value of your investments may fall as well as rise, and you may get back less than you deposit. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Just going back to the data for a moment, one thing you talk about in the book is is weighted averages. So you know we we can all look at the you know the averages on Crick Info, whatever on the BBC Sport website, you know in in the newspapers if they publish them these days. Uh, but you, you you something you talk about is weighted averages. Could you just explain uh, to our listeners what you mean by that and and how that works and how that helps you or how that yes, can look, help a selector? Again, let's put it in a really because we started off talking about data and you know maybe we went very theoretical very early. Let's make this very practical and plain spoken. So. If you play on an incredibly flat pitch, which 800 for eight, and you get 40 and you're out for 40, that 40 is actually worth a lot less than 40 because the expected output for each dismissed batsman is very high. Conversely, if you get 110 out of 189 all out, that 110 is worth a huge amount to the team, a lot more than 110 in normal money. Similarly, with bowling, 
there are days, and you know, yours will, will remember them vividly from, from Middlesex days. There are days when three for 90 is the standout performance, not only in terms of facts and figures, but also in terms of how you bowled. You might have bowled the best you've ever bowled in your life, got three for 90 on a feather bed against brilliant batsmen, and everyone else got panned. Equally, there are times when you can get, you know, five for 20, and all you have to do is run up and bowl at somewhere near the batsman, and the seam does the rest for you. Now, what we did, so in other words, to capture real contribution, in a normal conversation in the pub, we'd be talking about those kinds of things, and we'd be saying, well, yeah, yeah, that, that 50 was worth a lot more today. That would be a very normal conversation amongst informed and you know, intelligent sports fans. What weighted averages tries to do is to capture that added value and sometimes, you know, diminished value through an algorithm. So it factors in the average score for each batsman in that innings, the quality of the bowling attack, the pitch and all the rest of it. And what you do is you plug in, you know, I never do this because obviously I just see the output on my app when I was selector. But what happens is the, the raw data goes in, you know, is applied to the algorithm and comes out as something slightly different. It might come out as exactly the same. What you find is that batsmen that play on very difficult pitches get a improved weighted average set against their you know, headline average. And what you find is that bowlers who bowl on extremely flat pitches get an improved bowling average relative to their headline bowling averages. So what you're really doing is you're providing context for the performances. It's not the only tool, it's not the, it's not the perfect solution, it's one form of information. Do you think those should be published to help the cricketing to help the cricketing public see why a player has been selected, or is it you know is it a sort of secret tool for coaches and selectors? There is a there is a proprietary element to that. Okay, and let's look at a, a question. For me, did I make a mistake by talking about them ever? Possibly, because I actually thought they added a lot of value, and sometimes maybe I was just a bit excited to sort of you know, being interested in ideas, as I am here, maybe I talked about it. And then people perhaps thought it was unfair I wasn't revealing it all and showing the whole picture. So you're raising a very interesting question. Some players might have thought that too, by the way. They might have thought it got, it, it was mentioned, but, you know, does it need to be completely transparent? Where we ended up was, it was no great secret and all the decision makers had perfect total access to it. But I we did feel there was some value in in not revealing it all to the wider public. Yeah, I'm, well, I'm interested to hear about, you know, also as well, though, with weighted averages, something that struck me, I've been thinking about weighting averages, and one, one thing I was thinking about, that if you play on poor pitches, do you play in a particularly limited way, which means you can't flourish on good pitches? I mean, that's, I mean, that's quite a niche, that's quite a niche Very question. It's a, it's a very, very good question. And we debated this at a big scouting meeting. I remember it was a really interesting meeting. I remember talking to Glenn Chappell, who was, you know, director of cricket at Lancashire. Lots and lots of people in the county game. And I think I said something like this. The difficulty is that if you play on good pitches, you get good at playing on good pitches. But if you play on bad pitches, you don't get good at playing on bad pitches. You just get fried. You know, now, obviously, if Jeffrey Boycott was here... 
he would say, you're talking rubbish because we play on uncovered pitches and we mastered it. Yeah. And of course, there must be some truth in that because players did play on uncovered pitches and did master it. <laughs> we certainly didn't, or I certainly didn't, looking back on my playing days. If you play on enough bad pitches, you just ended up, I felt, shot to bits. And actually, playing against the great Australian players in the 90s and 2000s, who were so often dominant players in county cricket, we'd be trying to figure out a technique, the young English players, to survive on these difficult pitches. And then just rock up in good form. And then they'd just play better. And we'd sort of want to know what the secret was to them playing on bad pitches. And they'd basically be better at batting and be less worried about it, was, was the kind of the way it felt when you were collecting the ball from the boundary after Stuart Law had whacked it into the extra cover fence again. And so I think there are big problems with playing on lots of bad pitches, actually. Um, and I, I think it's one of those areas where England cricket has to work at getting better. Um, because when I look at going back to personal experience as a batter, batsman, it got so much better in the early 2000s. I think there was a period of time when county cricket was actually pretty good. I certainly found it really interesting competition. Loads of good overseas players, you know, Warren McGraw, Murali Sacklane, Mushtaq, all of these fantastic cricketers, not to mention all the Australian batsmen. And I think the pitches were good. And I thought it, it helped to create that generation of players that so many of whom got 100 on Test debut. I'm the worst person to make this case because I failed in Test cricket. But so many of the players in, in that era, Trot, um, Pryor, Strauss, yeah, they, they just flourished straight away. And almost everyone Cook, that... Obviously uh, Cook as well. Alistair, Alistair Cook, Cook yeah. you know, almost everyone yeah. that played a sustained amount of Test cricket in that era averaged pretty comparably. Their county average was pretty comparable to their Test average. So although that was a great credit to them and to the selectors and coaches, I also think part of the equation was county cricket was, was pretty good. I think the two forms of the game have drifted apart a little bit, um, which made it less... It, it, I think it it was harder to predict whether county form would translate into test form, I think. You you briefly there, Ed, touched on your own career. Would, would Ed Smith, national selector, give Ed Smith, test cricketer, a few more test matches? Well, <laughs> no, I never would have given him any. Um, the, well, that's an interesting question as well. Would you have given tell, yourself any test matches? I'll tell you a funny story from, from my son. Um, when I became selector four and a bit years ago, Dexter was four and we did that classic sort of compromise thing where you know we were, I wasn't around much at that time I was away from the family a lot so we sort of tried to go on a holiday near the test match you know classic kind of compromise thing and I remember being near Nottingham at the test match um, at Trent Bridge England v India and I was up early with my four-year-old son and getting coffee and he said to the guy making the coffee, that's my dad over there, he used to play cricket for England. And I felt this wave of pride is pathetic. You know, here I am, 40 years old, feeling proud about my son, talking to someone making my coffee. And then he added, but very quickly they found somebody better. <laughs> <laughs> and I just did you know, So anyway, he'd obviously heard me say that about myself, so I'll probably yeah. stick with that. Um, yeah. But look, the, the, actually, I think that the thing I did maybe take out of that experience... Um, again, and you know, some players may disagree and think I handled it very badly in convers difficult conversations, and that's their right, and and they'll have their their view and their say. I was very aware of disappointment because I know you know I played five innings for England, you know, 
three test matches and that was that. And I know what that feels like. And also it did teach me about something I wouldn't have known the phrase then, age 25 or six, but about sample size. If you, and if you get interested in data, um, you, you inevitably get interested in, do you have enough evidence to make an informed decision? Uh, and I tended to think that sometimes in, in, if you like, distant past, I was quite unusual in getting a short run of games in, in the era I played in, but probably going back to the 80s, players were quite frequently given one or two test matches or three test matches. And I think it's very, very hard to make a, an informed judgment on a player in a very short period of time. So if anything, it probably alerted me to the fact that you want to try to be fair and give people uh, a decent amount of time. Um, but inevitably, anyone involved with selection, you know, you, you, you know, you, you have to do what's best for the team. And that's your job. And that will bring with it um, moments where you have to, you know, act decisively and, and be tough. Because although it's difficult for the player who's missing out, as John Inverarity, the great Australian selector, who was a brilliant selector, always used to say, yes, it's difficult for the guy who's missing out, but if you don't drop someone you ought to drop, what about the injustice on the person who ought to be in the team? Which is a very interesting way of looking at it, that we tend to perfectly naturally think about justice for the person who's facing disappointment. But of course, there are two sides to that coin. What, um, what are you looking to do now? You've got the book out. Is that a, a vehicle to develop another strand to your academic uh, work or uh, going off at a tangent or you know what what's your kind of aim over the next year or two do you want to be back involved in cricket in some way or are you quite happy doing what you're doing look it's a it's a really interesting question um i've always i've moved towards being a bit more open i think in life i think when i was very young i was very determined and I wanted to do the next thing and know what it was and try and, you know, do it well. As I've got a bit older, I, I think I've become more open to uncertainty and not being 100% sure what I'm going to do and try and build that into a, a, a creative and authentic path, which is not always clear what it's going to be. Um, the academic side of life is, is very interesting at the moment where the Institute of Sports Humanities is which has started in London, been had three years here, is opening in Melbourne this November, so I'll be over for the launch of that. Um, and that actually replenished me a lot when I was selected, just that engagement with students and teachers. Sometimes it's actually when you're trying to explain something that you, you actually come to understand it better. It's a good way to learn as well. Um, I'm not sure. I The truth about, you know, high performance sport, whatever we want to call it, you know, the sharp end, we might say, is it gives you very, very high highs. And it's, there's nothing quite like the winning in sport. Um, but I also think I've been lucky that I've been able to have spells doing something different. And maybe, maybe I'm suited to spells of very intense absorption in something like selection, and then taking a back seat and thinking about it and trying to process it, which is what this book's about. Um, so I don't know. At the moment, I'd say, uh, you know, the book, it, exactly as you two have both said, it's a book of ideas. I hope it has some use outside cricket, as well as naturally, I think it will, people 
you know, be in- intrigued by the cricketing dimension. Um, because that that's who I am, I think. Uh, I think I've always had a foot in cricket and also a bit beyond it too. And hopefully that, that's had some use. Um, sure, it's annoyed people at times, but ho- hopefully it's also been a little bit different. Um, so the difficulty is, in summary, that I've never really had a career to follow. I've always just done things that seemed interesting at the time. And that's true with this book too. Um, it doesn't really fit into a genre. It's not a type of book. It's just what I wanted to say. Um, I, just, you, you, we talked about being a book of ideas. If, if, like, if you could say like the one or two or three, it might even be three, whatever. I mean, there are more, there are more than that in the book that you're sort of most interested by, or I don't know, proud. I'm not sure that's the right word. Proud of coming up with, or um, that, that you think people should focus on or, or could, pr- could provoke thought. What, what, what would they be? I think one, one question, the very beginning is interesting. I, that, that's yours's question. I think if you're going to be a decision maker in most complex areas, obviously, you know, selecting a cricket team is a complex question, but so is building a team in many areas of business or, or modern world. I think you're, you're likely to be drawing on lots of different kinds of evidence. And I think some versatility in your modes of thought is going to be important. You're going to be probably using data, but you're also going to be drawing on instincts and intuition as well. And I think the ability to live with that creative tension and not to think you can perfectly resolve it and sort it is probably it's supposed to be difficult and that's why you're doing it and that's why it's important. That's point idea one. There's no perfect solution, I suppose, would be the summary of that. I think the second idea is that in any creative exercise, you might not always know how you got there. In fact, completely. In fact, that's part of it. And to that degree, I think that the human sphere has a lot to learn from the arts because we expect that from, if a poet said that or an artist, you'd say, of course, of course you didn't know exactly how you were gonna do it. You know, you're a creative person. But there's all different forms of creativity. And I think there's a danger with modern managerialism and with the bureaucratic tendency that people write down exactly how they're going to do things. This is going to be the process. This is going to be the feedback loop. This is going to be the 360 assessment. They want to define how everything's going to happen before they do it. But if you ask any entrepreneur, you know, most great business plans didn't grow that way. They were much more instinctive and intuitive and then their iteration and then they learned from failure and and success. So I think that to some degree, uh, particularly if you work for a big organization, you want to have a good process. You definitely want to have a good process, but you also need to have a fresh mind so that you're not only doing process. How many people do we speak to in different professions, whether it's teaching or medicine or business or sport? And you sense that they're kind of drowning in process and all they're doing is kind of getting through the bureaucratic elements of their job. I think that is a big threat to good decision making because people don't have the freshness and don't have the insights that they will do when they are, they're more alive intellectually and creatively. So I suppose one of the things I used to feel, and James Taylor was brilliant with me because James and Mo Bobat too, and that whole team, 
it was a lot of fun. That sometimes get lost, and maybe I don't always communicate that when I've spoken publicly, or maybe I was, you know, a bit standoffish. But behind the scenes, there was a lot of fun, a lot of challenge, a lot of mischief, and within, I think, a pretty strong and thorough process. Without those elements, without those human relationships, without that jauntiness, without that mischief, without people poking fun at you when you slip up in a, in a good way, uh, I think you then, things become a bit more of a chore. Um, so I think that's a big part of it too. And I suppose the, the, the fourth thing I would say is that, you know, I don't think I really have a subject, but no, you know, I, I studied history way back when as, as a student. And I think that one of the important questions for a decision maker is actually a historical question. Most people won't call it history, but it's what's going on here. That's actually the great theme of Mervyn King's book, Radical Uncertainty, is before we come to what we're going to do, first of all, what's going on here? And people sometimes skip past that as though it's a bit boring. But in actual fact, if you don't have a good handle on what's been happening, where the problems are, where the strengths are, where the gaps are, yeah, you're rushing to solutions. And that's the, uh, I sometimes think a bad selection meeting goes like this. People sit down and they say, I prefer X to Y. You say, hold on a minute. <laughs> you know, what do we need in this series? What do we learn from the last series? Where are we going to, you know, what are the strategic objectives? How are we balancing competing tensions between formats? Those sorts of questions. And then what's the opposition? What are the conditions? You know, what's the evidence? And by the time you've had that full conversation with an open mind, usually it resolves itself. But when people just launch into, I don't like him, I like him, <laughs> you know, it's like you're coming to the answers before you've even framed the question or allowed space for sort of what's going on here. So that they would be the... I suppose actually in a way selection has changed slightly because uh, it, rather than just picking the best players you're talking about picking the most appropriate players for the team needs and for the situation. And obviously your book uh, explores that. Listen, I'm going to make a decision now and I'm going to bring this conversation to a close because we, I mean, I'm almost sort of drowning in theories and ideas and, and kind of interesting uh, concepts. So Ed, thank you for uh, just explaining the, the, the basis of the book and some of the detail and your life over the last three or four years. Very interesting. The book, of course, is called Making Decisions, Putting the Human Back in the Machine by Ed Smith, and it's published by William Collins, which is part of HarperCollins. I'm going to go for a lie down now. Uh, I think uh, Ed and Simon, probably you should too. Uh, good luck with the book anyway, Ed, and uh, thanks very much for your time. Yeah, th thanks very much. Thanks very much indeed. I'm just going to ask one more, one more journalistic question right at the end. You probably won't answer it. Who were the two players that thought they should have been picked instead of Sam Curran when he when he came in? They're no, I'm not going to answer that because <laughs> they, they, no, you, and you know, typical. Yeah, you know, Simon Mand, he, he's fessed up to being a very good journalist, and that's true. I've seen you, you know, get to people to answer tough questions. I'm not going to answer that. I do think that um, you know some and and. Credit to, you know, I, I tell the story mischievously in the book because it was it was my first game or second game and I'm getting peppered with these, you know, phone calls from directions of cricket. But of course, you know, a good coach backs his players and I never really held it against anyone for, for putting forward their players. So, it, it, you know, it, the story was told with with mischief and affection, um, but I'm glad that, that Sam Curran played that game. <laughs> 
a very diplomatic answer. Ed, great. Thanks very much for your time. Thanks for joining us on The Analyst Inside Cricket. Thanks so much, guys. Thank you. This episode of the Analyst Inside Cricket is brought to you by IG, official partners of England Cricket and the place to go if you want to get on the front foot and manage your own investments. To find out more, go to ig.com slash investing, remembering that the value of your investments may fall as well as rise and you may get back less than you deposit. Sports Social Podcast Network. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.